Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Study Smarter series. My name is Stuart Bryant. Today, we're going to be doing what becomes hopefully the first of a continuing feature of the Study Smarter series podcast where we will dissect a few questions from a question of the day resource uh, from Stat Pearls that are going to focus uh, for now on step one questions, and we'll, we'll see about changing it up for other topics in the future. I hope this supplements some of the material in the step one Study Smarter series and is useful for you. Please let us know if this is helpful by giving us a rating and some feedback, as well as you can send me an email at podcast at insidetheboards.com. But without further ado, we'll go through a couple of these questions. And to get us started, we have a 40-year-old woman who is found to have chronic cholestasis. The most serious complication of chronic cholestasis is the development of which of the following conditions? Is it one, intractable hiccups, two, primary biliary cirrhosis, three, cholelithiasis, or four, hypercholesterolemia? Kind of talking a little bit about this. Uh, chronic cholestasis is when there's a decrease in bile flow or some sort of impaired secretion or uh, some sort of obstruction of bile flow through the intrahepatic or extrahepatic bile ducts, uh, which can lead to backup of uh, bile and cholestasis. Uh, when it's there for a long time, that makes it chronic. And what is the most serious complication of this? Well, the answer here is two, primary biliary cirrhosis. So primary biliary cirrhosis is a condition where you basically have chronic cholestasis and you get liver damage as a result. This ultimately leads to cirrhosis. Uh, the, the cause isn't really understood, but it's really thought to be sort of autoimmune, developing in women particularly between ages of 35 and 70 years of age. Uh, it rarely occurs in men. There are four stages of this disease. The first is bile duct inflammation. Uh, the second stage is periportal fibrosis. The third stage is where you have progressive scarring. And the fourth stage is the ultimate cirrhosis that this develops. Uh, symptoms include itching. Um, this is from an elevation in bilirubin. Uh, there's also fatigue and jaundice. On physical exam, you'll see hepatosplenomegaly. They may have skin xanthomas. They may have clubbing of digits, and we'll see jaundice typically. Lab tests are relevant for an elevated ALKFOS, elevated bilirubins, elevated GGT, and elevated uh, liver function test, aspart and alanine neurotransferases. Cholesterol may be elevated as well. Diagnosis is done with ultrasound, an ERCP, and liver biopsy. A classic test fact primary biliary cirrhosis is that they have autoimmune positive for anti-mitochondrial antibodies. And I think that's a pretty, pretty relevant step one fact. The next question here is, a 63-year-old female presents to the pre-admission testing clinic 
for an elective total knee replacement. She is taking medication for cholesterol and an herbal supplement. Which of the following should be stopped prior to surgery? The one, vitamin D. Two, ginseng. Three, valerian. Or four, melatonin. So the answer here is two, ginseng. Ginseng is believed to uh, uh, act as sort of an herbal supplement that decreases stress as well as may provide some energy for some people. It does inhibit platelets and therefore should be withheld for at least a week prior to having surgery. This kind of falls into the list of medications or list of herbal supplements and things you don't want patients to have while on warfarin. So if you think about platelets and your coagulation factors and risk of bleeding, you do not want to be giving anything to a person who may interact with those when you're trying to anticoagulate somebody because it may uh, upregulate and cause, I guess, a worse response and make them more likely to bleed, or it may downregulate the medication and make them more likely to clot. Uh, you're typically playing a balancing act with that a lot of the time, and these supplements can interfere with that. Uh, other supplements that can interfere with platelets include uh, ginkgo bilboa, green tea, garlic. Uh, that's actually how I would remember them, is if it has a G in the name, um, it may interfere and you should not have them on it. Other things that you might think about and you don't want your patients on prior to surgery or may interact with warfarin like coenzyme Q10 is one of those things that interacts with uh, warfarin. You may not want them on. Um, St. John's wort may also cause some sort of anticoagulation. You don't want them on that prior to surgery. Uh, just a lot of different things in general. They're not so bad to have with people not taking these kind of medications. They're pretty benign, but once you start having patients taking supplements and they need other medical therapies, uh, that's when you really have to counsel them away from these kind of things. Uh, vitamin D, pretty benign. You can take it. Valerian is supposed to help with like calming and sedation. Melatonin is helpful for sleep. Um, things that we're, I guess, not really terribly worried about uh, are interacting for, with you during surgery. So the next question here is, which of the following local anesthetics has the fastest onset of action? Is it lidocaine, mepivacaine, bupivacaine, or procaine? The answer here is lidocaine. Lidocaine is the one with the fastest onset of action. Um, typically, it's a pretty safe drug to give locally. Adverse reactions are not uh, often to occur, but it is given in through an arterial line or um, into the venous system. It could cause some heart problems uh, if you remember your heart drugs. Um, I guess you can have some allergy to it, but it's fairly rare. Uh, if you give it centrally, you may have some cardiovascular effects as well as uh, I think you can have some CNS effect as well. Just to kind of go over the local anesthetics and their onset. Procaine and bupivacaine have a very slow onset. Um, procaine has a short duration of action. It's a low-potency drug. Um, bupivacaine has a long-acting uh, effect, so it's high-potency. 
Mepivacaine is pretty similar to lidocaine. It uh, it acts for longer than lidocaine, um, but it kind of falls into the like medium onset uh, area. So the next question here is, which of the following statements regarding clonidine is true? Is it one, it is an alpha one receptor antagonist? Two, it acts peripherally to decrease blood pressure. Three. It is used off-label to minimize the symptoms of opioid withdrawal. Or four, it causes blockade of beta receptors. So clonidine is actually used off-label to minimize the symptoms of opioid withdrawal. Depending on how much withdrawal the patient may go through, uh, it can be helpful. Sometimes it's actually used off-label for alcohol withdrawal too, but that's a little more dangerous because if you give it in for alcohol withdrawal, uh, you may mask some of the, the, the vital signs that show how bad that their withdrawal is actually, and they may have some of the other symptoms uh, like seizures may still happen that you're just not able to, or you may not be as knowledgeable that they're, they're not being treated enough with, through, for their alcohol withdrawal. So clonidine is an alpha-2 agonist, uh, not an alpha-1 receptor antagonist. Uh, it's used to treat hypertension. Uh, it acts centrally to decrease blood pressure. A couple of the side effects of clonidine include dry mouth or xerostomia. may also cause fatigue and uh, hypotension, uh, which is part of the, <laughs> the reason that you're giving it, but it also can have a profound onset. Um, when you give it for the first time, you have to be careful. Or typically, patients need to be educated regarding the side effects, and they need to avoid abruptly stopping the medication because this could uh, elicit some other problems. Opioid withdrawal is actually very helpful because it minimizes the symptoms such as the diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting that accompany the opioid withdrawal. It doesn't alter cravings for drugs. It's not, it's not going to make them stop craving or anything like that drug is actually particularly dangerous in the elderly because of the risk of having a fall uh, is already high in the elderly and then giving them this medication could have the hypotension as well as dizziness and drowsiness. Um, also, you should have people avoid operating heavy machinery until they are used to the medication. So the way clonidine works is uh, by suppressing uh, sympathetic outflow. Uh, this results in the lower blood pressure. And if you discontinue it quickly, like I was saying earlier, you have to counsel patients against this because it can cause a rebound hypertension um, from an increase of sympathetic outflow. Uh, one of the other alternative uses of this medication is for ADHD. Uh, you may see that in some pediatrics questions later. All right, last one here. Which of the following statements about an abnormal breast lesion is true? Is it one? Cystic lesions are usually benign. Two, a risk factor for breast cancer is early menopause. Three, mammograms can be used to determine whether the lesion is cystic or solid. Or four, baseline mammogram screening should begin at age 50. The answer to this question is that cystic lesions are usually benign. So, kind of getting into that, if you have a cystic lesion, you can be comfortable that it might be benign, but you still have to work it up. Um, mammograms are not that useful for 
determining whether it's cystic versus solid, you would prefer to use an ultrasound for that. Um, so that that's a big part. Baseline mammogram screening should begin between 40 and 50. You know, I guess every everything's kind of changed with that and uh, how often you get it done and if it's annual or biannual uh, really depends, but it's not. Uh, it's before 50, so 40, 45, uh, depending on who you're asking. The USPSTF uh, recommends 50, though, so it's not entirely incorrect. So to kind of go over breast masses a little bit, the development of a breast mass uh, requires a thorough evaluation to rule out malignancy. Uh, risk factors for breast, breast cancer include early menarche, increased age, late menopause, the BRCA gene mutation, uh, being nulliparous, not having children, uh, or having first-degree relative with breast cancer, um, as well as cancer of the contralateral breast. A palpable mass can be evaluated with a fine needle or excisional biopsy. It's important to remember that mammograms have a 10 to 15% false negative rate. Therefore, a palpable solid mass should, in most cases, be biopsied. Uh, despite having a negative mammogram. Also, a, a solid lesion is more worrisome for malignancy than cystic, and ultrasounds can easily distinguish those because a cystic lesion will be belottable on ultrasound, or you may even see the fluid in it. Um, if the mass is cystic, it can be watched pretty closely with ultrasound or aspirated. Screening guidelines for the diagnosis of breast cancer are continually changing, as I've previously mentioned. All right, so thank you for tuning in for this week and our episode on uh, some questions of the week from Stat Pearls. Uh, like I said, if you could take the time to subscribe to our podcast, that would really help us. And if you would be so generous as to give us a rating, that also can really help improve our content. If you're interested in more stuff from Inside the Boards, definitely check out the Inside the Boards app. You can get access to our uh, audio cue bank as well as the, the Crush Step 1 podcast. I appreciate you taking the time to listen and hope you have a good week. Happy studying. <laughs>